Clear. background noise throughout the day but it's just airplanes so it's not it's, it's not really no good background noise yeah right. this is this is the best seat in the house that's right we got sky riders now we got sky riders, we got sky riders now. now does that say you cap i can't it's got a runway in the front yard <laughs> and you're in sight clear west turkey national ground good afternoon sir taxi via foxtrot and delta So is this the same guy? Um, is this the same guy who buzzed all the jeeps on the beach a while ago? You remember the story I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah I do. Uh, that, I don't think so. No. I don't think so. There was also a guy. So there's uh, more than one of these guys, is what you're saying? Well, there's there's a third guy. There was a guy who had a helicopter and was doing weird stuff with it in Southern California. Maybe I it's see. just California. Maybe it's California. Well, you know, it Maybe could be. Well, could we, be. we can't forget. What is it? Colton Harris Moore, the barefoot bandit boy with no license who stole. Yeah, yeah but he was like they, they say they accuse him of stealing like five airplanes. But he was like yeah. Oregon, right? He wasn't California. Well, it's West Coast, so it's all kind of the same. You know, anything beyond, you know, Alabama. Uh, we had this conversation the other day. There's Atlanta, there's New York, and there's Canada, right? I think yeah. it's the longitude, man. I think it's the longitude. I think it's the longitude. Well, tell it's, people it's what time, we're talking about here. So this guy, so this guy got sentenced. What is, what's his name? Somebody, somebody read from the press his, release. His name is Michael Dana McHenry. Okay. And, 56 yeah. of Ridgeville, California. Right. Was sentenced this week by federal authorities to 21 months in federal prison. For flying a single-engine Cessna without without an airman certificate. Now that's not the whole story. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> well, and from reading no. this story, it's not twenty-one months. That's not very. He'll just just barely be sober by then, I think. Well, at the, at, the, at yeah, he he definitely should probably be drying out. Um, uh, according to court documents and evidence presented at a day day long here, this only took a day. Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hmm, let's think about this for a second. Yeah. yeah. Like, Guilty. Mm, uh, hmm. uh, McGinry tried to land at the Eastern Sierra Regional Airport in Bishop, California. He was flying recklessly and nearly crashed into an aircraft, preparing to take off on another runway. McGinry touched down and then went off the runway into, a, into sagebrush, made a U-turn back onto the runway, and parked the airplane. Upon entering the terminal, the defendant said, I just scared the blank out of myself. He then asked, where am I? When he was advised that he was in Bishop, California, he responded, where is that in relation to the rest of the world? <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, now I have to confess there have been times when I've felt that way, but you know well, you're not supposed to. And, uh, yeah, it, um, my here's, here, here's the generally don't the first question at home. out of All right, hang on a second. Yeah, uh, uh, go ahead. Generally, the first question out of, out of my mouth when when something like this occurs is. What time zone is this? Yes, yep, yep, yep. <laughs> Is this central time, mountain time? What time zone is this? David, what were you going to say? Well, here's the the obvious don't try this at home. <laughs> it, is the guy then apparently yeah. told the people that he'd used marijuana and Oxycontin and always, and quote, always flies high, uh-huh. close quote. And also admitted that he didn't have his license, uh, according to the prosecutors. Uh, it, 
record said that the guy had 1,200 hours and that the only certificate he ever had was a student pilot certificate that expired in 1988. Yeah. Well, this is one question I have about this whole thing. Why are there, how are there FAA records if he never had anything more than a student certificate? Medical. Well, maybe he never had a medical certificate either. Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know. Well, I mean, yeah, right. I I, this guy would have like all this stuff, but he made sure he yeah. had his medical up to date, you know, and yeah, he filled it in accurately, you know. I don't, so, oh, wait yeah. a minute. Oh, yeah. He he had a valid medical? No, we don't know that. We're we're trying to no. figure out what to say. No, no, no. no. A third class because the student pilot certificate, yeah, it's the same the, the two are the same. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, that's that's. Uh, wouldn't it change the nature of the offense? Hey, it's the, it's the federal government. Give him a break. You know? Yeah, right. I can't get everything. Else. So he announced that uh, you know he's just a casual kind of guy, and uh, and the locals at Bishop called the cops on him. And then what happened? Well, they, then they law enforcement. Yeah, uh, law enforcement officers. Oh, hang on, hang on. One at a time here, Jeff. Uh, you go. All right, uh, law enforcement officers found a prescription bottle for OxyContin and a film canister with marijuana residue inside the Cessna. And this is a Cessna 210, by the way. And evidence of marijuana cultivation and a recent harvest <laughs> at McHenry's residence. Um, in imposing the sentence, <laughs> in imposing the sentence, the judge found that McHenry was quote a reckless pilot unquote. I think we can probably agree with that. Who quote engaged in a lot of illegal conduct for a lot of years. Yeah, okay, and created quote a very dangerous situation unquote when he flew into the Bishop Airport. Uh, there was, according to the judge, uh, the potential for a um, uh, runway collision. Um, and, you know, the case was investigated by basically a who's who of federal law enforcement, yada, yada, yada. Um, a correspondent or an acquaintance of mine uh, also uh, uh, filled in some gaps here. Said, said he, uh, uh, when he came into the airport, he said something close to, I must have gone through a military area because jets were shooting flares at me. <laughs> <laughs> He, he was flying from Needles, California. Lizards. I'm seeing flying lizards. Right. Yeah. Clearly, well, there he, was more than just oxy and marijuana here. Go ahead. <laughs> big red, you know, big red convertible going to Las exactly, Vegas with yes. bats flying overhead. And, That's you know, my be careful. Point. Be careful with the ether. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he was going flying from Needles near the Mexican border to Eureka, uh, California, which, as I recall, is, is northern California. Uh, the direct line takes him through both Edwards Air Force Base restricted areas and the China Lake Weapons Station. Restricted areas, which obviously would be, you know, jets with flares. Um, when he landed, the plane, <laughs> when he landed, his plane was missing the right nose gear door. It was also missing both main gear doors. The retract rods were still hanging down. The left wing was bent. The airplane had not, had not been annual in years. Um, the airplane had been recently purchased uh, in the condition noted uh, damage. Uh, the condition was noted. Um, and it was apparently not occur not incurred in the landing overrun at Bishop. Um, the the aircraft with which the the uh, McHenry conflicted here it was a King Air. It was getting to take off ready to take off on runway three four and announced on on CTAF that he was doing so. Got in a in the two ten sails past the midpoint of runway twelve. The runways cross in the middle at hundred feet or so. Gear and flaps down. Fortunately, the King Air sees him, even though the guy made no radio call. The guy touches down maybe 300 feet from the end of runway 12, <laughs> which is a 7,500-foot runway and runs off the end of the dirt overrun. Um, now, the punchline, he did produce a medical marijuana user's card for identification. <laughs> Well, so, it, oh, that's okay. just that's just remarkable. And and oh, oh, it, it, it has a little to the, context to the location here. 
Bishop, California, is is not just some little rural uh, uh, airport uh, with, with, you know, with with wide open approaches and and, and clear terrain all around. No, uh, it's in the Owens Valley. Yep. In the Sierras, it's at forty one hundred feet above sea level. <laughs> on, on a cool day, its yeah. density altitude is above a mile, and it's surrounded right. by ten thousand foot peaks. So. Ten thousand foot peaks. The hang glider pilots used to go there when they wanted to get unintentional aerobatic training. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What's the answer? What say, Jeb, go ahead. Yeah. Answer the question about FAA records showing him with twelve hundred hours. Okay. Uh, this this is again according to uh, um, this acquaintance of mine who lives in Bishop. Testimony in court showed that the guy had had a student pilot certificate which expired in 19. Well, this guy says 86. Interestingly, when the FAA spoke with him, he told them that he would get a new student certificate, which he did, and he listed 1,200 hours of flying time on his, on his application for the new student certificate. Um, so there, there's a little bit more going on here than, than just a hot landing and a slightly inebriated pilot who, oh, by the way, forgot to get his, you know, private pilot's license. Um, it takes all kinds. Yeah. So for anybody who thinks that flying is difficult, here we go, right? It's like, well, there, yeah, there's that. You don't even need a license anymore. Yeah. It's like anybody can do it, you know, and fly through the MOAs, no problem. You know, it's, it's just like. I don't know. <laughs> I just even don't even know where to go with this. This is just crazy. And so, th- and this is not the only guy. So we still got the guy who buzzed the jeeps. We still beach. got the guy. What was it? Venice Pier? Uh, maybe I'm not sure. Something, something like that. Some and then, beach, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. then we got the helicopter guy. The, the helicopter guy. Then we got um, uh, the barefoot bandit. The barefoot bandit, right? The kid who kept managing to not simply steal planes, but crash them repeatedly. Yeah, and, and, and walked away. I, I blame Bill Gates. Well, <laughs> so do I, but what are you talking about? <laughs> Microsoft Flight Simulator, of course. Ah, okay. Well, yeah, all right. And, the, uh, and you know, they just recently brought that back, uh, coincidentally, or not. They, they are coming out with another version, right? Yeah, right. well, okay. This is all starting to come together now. Now I'm beginning to understand. Uh-huh. There's all these things, and, uh, and they're bringing back Flight Sim, and uh, hmm, okay, okay. Oh, yeah, there's been a, scenes in a couple of movies over the years where, you know, the hero would, grabs the airplane and takes off to flee from the bad guys. And people say, oh, I didn't know you, you knew how to fly. And, well, I only learned to take off. <laughs> <laughs> what, was the, what was the movie, uh, 2012? Um, oh, God, yeah. The, yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. With the, the, Cessna. the, yeah, the, the Cessna 340 and the, and the guy had taken, like, you know, four lessons or something like that and... And, uh, you know, okay, fine. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Anyways. All right. And, and and he did some marvelous, you know, nap of the collapsing earth flying. Yeah, I know, really. I mean, but I suppose if you gotta, you gotta, you know. He had me holding my breath. I kept wondering what kept sucking him lower because, yeah. like, you'd think you'd be climbing by now. But I guess when the earth collapses beneath you, it sucks a lot of air down there. Yeah, yeah. Which nephew- kind of matches the quality of the movie. My nephew was here over the weekend, and at one point he says to me, he says, Uncle Jack, if, if you were on an airliner and and they needed somebody to fly, if the pilot became incapacitated, he said, could you fly that airplane? And I said, I could try. And so 
I could, Absolutely. I could give it. A, I could. I could try it once. Yeah, that's right. Once. I. I'd try. I don't know if I do it, but I give it a try. Absolutely. They yeah. all fly. They all fly the same. You just got to learn the different speeds. It's different speeds, right? I told him the big problem would be, you know, because he said no. He says, I, he, you know, I, I'm saying, and then he's like saying, oh, he could do it too. You know, you could do it, Uncle Jack, because I, I could do it. And I'm saying, sure, yeah, you could do it. And, uh, <laughs> and, and I was trying to convince him that the hard part wouldn't be flying the airplane. The hard part would be operating the radio. Because so he, he kept saying, oh, yeah, they'll talk me down. And I'm going, yeah, if you can make the radio work. So, I don't know. Anyways. <laughs> Welcome, folks, to uh, episode 207, 207 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. We're recording this episode on uh, Thursday evening, September 9, 2010. And joining me here in the virtual hangar, a couple of good friends. First of all, Dave Higdon's out there. who's talking to us from Wichita, Kansas. Hey, Dave, how you doing this evening? Oh well, I'm doing a lot better than uh, than, than some guy out in the flew out <laughs> of Mission, Henry. California. Yeah, well, it's like faint praise. It's hard, you know, not hard to do. Hey, I mean, I've done my share of flying without a license. But back, but yeah, okay, explain. Only in, only in stuff that they allowed you to fly without, without a license. license. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. And also here in the virtual hangar this evening is Jeb Burnside talking to us from uh, somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. Hi, Jeb. How are you tonight? I'm fine, and and I have to say that that my sex life is better uh, than Mr. McHenry's will be over the next 21 months. Well, or worse, uh, as the case may be. Are, are you sure? Well, no, I'm sure. I am absolutely positive. I see. All right. And I'm Jack Hodgson, and I'm talking to you from UCAP Summer Headquarters, high atop Lookout Point in, uh, I don't know what it is now, it's it's starting to fall. Not we, want, we want images. Of, I know you do. I was thinking lookout. about that the other day. I, I'll, no. go out and, I'll go out into the boat, and I'll take a picture of, the, of Lookout Point from the water. You have a boat? I have, yeah, I have multiple boats. I have a pontoon boat, and I have, I mean, they're not mine, they belong to the family, but yeah, I have a pontoon boat, and I have a... Uh, a, a, a sort of ski boat, a really old ski boat, and we have a little aluminum boat, and we have myriad kayaks. Kayaks are the thing these days. Kayaks are the thing these days, yeah. I was I was out in the kayak the other day, paddling around the kayak, and I'm th- and I'm thinking about visiting Florida, and I'm thinking, you know, but I probably can't ride the kayak in Florida because we're not. Because kayaks are we're, we're lousy with kayaks down here. Are you really? You couldn't, yeah. Oh yeah, we got kayaks out the wazoo because down here. Because I'm I'm paddling around my lake up here in New Hampshire, thinking it's unlikely I'm going to run into an alligator. And, well, well, I was going to say, and then kayaks in Florida are, are one of the more popular snacks among the yeah, alligators. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say something. The, the trick is getting a kayak that's bigger than the alligator. Yeah, that's right. You know, sure, and, you and can tougher. You can ride a kayak in Florida once. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you just might want something that's uh, you know uh, a little bit bigger than bite size. Yeah, sure. yeah. Well, and, but, and just remember, you don't have to paddle faster than the alligator. You just yeah, have to just paddle have... faster than the other kayak. That's right. Yeah. That's that, that's why they use the buddy system. Never that's kayak right. alone. Yeah. Yeah. That's a variation on the Vermont bear joke. But yeah. Okay. I get it. I get it. Uh, what's going on in aviation here? David, I think it was you who told us about this FAA course on, uh, I like this acronym, LUA. 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 Line up and wait, the replacement for position and hold. Yeah. Uh, and which so what, is, what about it requires a, an FAA course? Well, <laughs> it, you combine that and the slow learning curve of the pilot population sometimes, like guys that fly without a license for 10, 12 years, uh, with the changes in the taxiing rules that came along recently. You know, you get a clearance 
Now, you're required to get a clearance before you cross every runway, open, closed, active, inactive, when you're taxiing across an airport with, you know, taxiways that cross runways, right. even the ends. Yep. So all this coming at once, the FAA decided to put together a little online course that I believe will apply to your WINGS program uh, credits. It's something we ought to talk about someday. We have uh, from time to time. They don't yeah. give you WINGS anymore, so... You know, well, that's okay, but they still give credit toward your biennial, and it still helps make you smart and sharp. That's true. Go ahead. So they, they, they produced a uh, lineup and weight, or LUA, uh, online course. Uh, the link will be with the, uh, the show notes uh, to kind of help us all get used to the new terminology and how it's supposed to function and how it merges with the other stuff that involves moving around the airport. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's free. So, I mean, and how extensive a course is it? Is it just? I mean, does it, do they give you some indication of how much time it takes to complete it? Uh, I did not see that, but if it's like most of these, it's probably no no more than about thirty to forty minutes. I was going to say, yeah, it's it's an online thing. It's it's fairly quick and easy. Yeah. Um, okay. And, you, know, and you you be quizzed on it at the end, and and it's an open computer test. So. Yeah. That's right. That's right. It's an open browser test. Um, That's right. Okay. Well, that, no. All kidding aside, that sounds like a good thing because these new yeah. rules are kind of starting to gang up on me here, and uh, well, and yeah, getting a little they, bit confusing. And so I want to make sure I'm clear on them all. Yeah, they are. Yeah. So. Well, we are we are responsible for keeping up with stuff that they change, uh, among other things. Yeah. <laughs> As yeah. uh, matter of fact, there's so much stuff that changes that doesn't affect folks like us because we're not a large corporation operating a flight department with one or more airplanes and key executives and on the book and off the book trip or, you know, yeah. there's a ton of stuff that goes on all the time that we don't oh, have yeah. to mess with because we're just little old part 91 operators. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. But it keeps some people busy as a full-time career. Yeah. <laughs> and that's part of the point. Um, Part okay. of the problem. Yeah. So I want you guys to help me understand. I'm a little confused about this new thing about LSA and flying IFR uh-huh. and IMC and the whole thing. You know, we should probably just get Dan Johnson on here because he's the go-to guy on all this stuff, and he's the one that's quoted in all these press releases. But have either of you kind of internalized this at all? Are, are they saying that as of some future date or as of now, you cannot fly, even if you are properly certificated and, and equipped, you cannot fly an LSA, L- IFR? I don't think they're quite saying that. No. Because as the, as the system's been explained to me, as it's set up right now, uh, an LSA manufacturer can specify in its op specs for the airplane right. uh, that IFR actual IFR use is prohibited right? if they want to, uh, which makes it Ill- then at that point for that airplane illegal to do. I understand. Uh, you cannot address it at all, and if the equipment meets the requirements and you're properly licensed or you're being trained to be properly licensed, you can. Yeah. That's the way it kind of stands right now. Well, there's been an ongoing conversation about the... Uh, American Society for Testing Materials, ASTM, that works on developing these, the consensus that get the FAA approves the standard. 
and actually creating a standard for approving IFR use of light sport aircraft that meet the equipment requirements for IFR flight. They haven't been able to reach an agreement on how to do that and how to differentiate that. And, and, and it, it's, it's kind of a hang-up between some folks that think it would be an asset and would help the, the whole uh, uh, movement gain a little more traction and, and those that think that it's the wrong direction to take and is not a good idea for a variety of reasons. See, I, I, I thought we crossed this bridge already. I, I, thought, I thought we had two, two, two thoughts. For, that's one of them. Um, well, three thoughts. That, that was the first one. second one is <clears throat> that uh, um, according to this AvWeb story, A, the change is not retroactive. In other words, any LSA flying today or that is built before the new standard takes effect and is not prohibited from IMC flight um, exactly. properly equipped and flown by a qualified pilot may continue to do so. Um, uh, point B of this is that manufacturer up until this point anyway, up until this rule change, manufacturers had the option of choosing whether or not to prohibit IMC uh, in their in the airplane's paperwork. Right. Okay. Uh, the third point here is. Uh, again, according to this um, um, this AvWeb piece, uh, um, and this is quoting DJ, that Johnson further told AvWeb that under the ASTM process, the standard could change again in the future, in as little as 30 days, if a new consensus is reached on this issue. Th this same story says that one of the, or perhaps the primary uh, concern here, had to do with liability, uh, manufacturer's liability, I presume. Well, it strikes me that the manufacturer would be more liable uh, in, in a court if they restricted uh, the IFR capability of the airplane because an IFR qualified and current pilot uh, who might get himself into a situation uh, is going to be forced to scud run. He's going to be forced to do some other things that he, he may or may not wish to do. Uh, and there's probably as, as many you know, IFR qualified pilots out there flying, flying LSAs as there are sport pilots right now. So... I, I I'm not um, you know not not one to to overly come down on the ASTM people, but this strikes me as a as a great step backward. Yeah, and uh, uh, is 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 something that uh, um, maybe some head scratching and some wiser heads uh, uh, might want to revisit here in the very near future. Like you know, within thirty days. I think so. You know, and and so uh, as far as this whole grandfather clause is concerned, um, I, I'm a little confused by the wording of it because uh, it's not clear to me whether they're talking about model LSA models that are already flying or particular airframes they're talking about particular airframes see that's that that's bad so you know I so okay so. any any remos or any gobosh that's properly equipped now can continue to fly IFR but new ones that are exactly the same equipped will not be able to that's both well it's uh, only if remos didn't prohibit Right. IMC use to begin with, mm -hmm. and a number of the LSA manufacturers did. Right. Well, I, I, maybe they did. I, I'm just pulling two examples out of the air, and yeah, and maybe. But but assuming those two are currently allowed, and I'd be really surprised if they weren't. Um, I, I just this is crazy. I don't. Yeah, I don't understand this. It's a step backward, and and, you know, uh, and, and we'll, and, we'll get DJ on here in the near yeah. future. You know, DJ hints that, you know, okay, they can change it again. I think what DJ is hinting is, okay, even if they take the wrong step now, we can fix mm -hmm. it later. But, you know, the, the bureaucracy doesn't go in that direction. You know, they don't give yeah, more. 
um, you know, capabilities very easily. They they take yeah. away things pretty, you know. Dan's the only one that can really give us greater insight. But yeah. my my takeaway from reading this and, and reading some other stuff about it was that Dan brought up that point about the ability to change the standard in the future mm-hmm. uh, because they, that they've been making some progress toward a consensus. But for the time being, they, uh, the folks that wanted to do something to put an end to the what's 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 the word I want here? The variability among manufacturers until ah, they decide competitive a, advantage. Yes, until they could agree on a, on, on a community-wide light sport aircraft standard for IFR uh, operations. Can I, can I just ask a kind of a stupid question? And that is, what's wrong with the existing right? way that this worked where the manufacturer gets to specify yeah. whether or not the airplane is can be operated in IMC. Uh, is this I thought that was, that seemed to me like the ideal solution. The yeah. Is this the are the manufacturers looking for some sort of deniability here? They want it taken away but they don't want to do it? I I couldn't begin to tell you. Okay. That's uh, the fact is that they didn't really address it at all in the original standards that they set for light sport aircraft, which is why it was left up to whether it was mm-hmm. prohibited or not. Because the, the whole theory behind the light sport was it was going to be day VFR-only airplanes and pilots, or at least the, the pilot right. privilege. I, I right. I, I, yeah, I don't necessarily think LSAs were going to have that restriction. I thought sport pilots were going to have sport that restriction. Sport pilot was. Right. They, they, they allowed the flexibility of the airplanes being used at night uh, VFR very specifically, yeah. uh, so that a private pilot could fly at night and VFR, uh, just like they could a, a legacy LSA, but a sport pilot couldn't. Uh, the IFR operations, I don't think, if, I'd have to go back and review it a little bit more closely, but I don't think it was specifically addressed in any way more profound than you know, leaving it up to the manufacturers whether to, to prohibit it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so when you, you think about them having to actively prohibit it in the in in the the, the paperwork for their airplane, uh, that really kind of means that everybody else is is in if they want to equip the airplane properly. Right. Right. Now, I, you know, I don't know anybody wants to go out and do hard IFR in an LSA. Um, the flip side of which is it can come in real handy to have that capability sure. if you if you plan to use an LSA on a regular basis. Yeah. I mean, all those folks, I know we're flying out in California, you're constantly needing sure. 15 seconds of IMC per flight, all right, to get through a layer of clouds. And that's, you know, right. it's... Right. Well, and when you think of the training implications, because there's a boatload of Cessna 150s that taught yeah. instrument pilots to how to pass their check ride and, and go on and actually become instrument pilots. Uh, so it's just a natural extension in my mind that there's a segment there that wants these airplanes to be legal for not only training but actual for somebody properly rated in it because that's the category of airplane that they kind of meant this to replace mm-hmm. yeah well that's interesting you should say that david i hadn't really thought of that aspect of it that that does give a little bit more value back to my beloved 150s and 152s um it's suddenly oh absolutely suddenly absolutely. they become the bottom end of the envelope um ifr trainer Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Uh, and and there's there's a handful of light sport aircraft uh, that I've that I've flown that I would be as comfortable in uh, 
you know, in not level quality le- weather. All right. Yeah. Uh, overcast clouds going through it, flying an ILS. Uh, Low visibility. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Simple. Uh, no sweat, no strain, because they've got the instrument. They've got the the, the, the instruments. They've got the, the the proper equipment and the flying characteristics that lend themselves to that being a nice platform. There's right. some that I've flown that would kind of like, yeah, no, I don't think so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, I'll call DJ, see if we can get him in the hangar, and see if he can explain this to us because this is a muddle. I, I don't quite understand what's going on here. Yeah. And, uh, anyways, as a puzzlement, a puzzlement. Hey, David, when's the last time you flew hang gliders? Way too long ago. You know, I, you mentioned, I think, at Oshkosh, uh, um, kind of casual aside, that you still own a wing. I didn't realize that, that you still own uh, – you do still own a yes, hang gliding? I still own a wing. I still own a harness. The wing is not airworthy. Uh-huh. Uh, the harness and parachute rig are, although it's time to repack the parachute. And uh, that's what made me kind of dive into this little Sports Illustrated page of uh, photos from the uh, 2010 hang gliding nationals uh out in idaho about the time we were all at oshkosh uh-huh yeah some great uh, pictures here this is of awesome the, uh, beautiful stuff it really really took me back uh-huh made me kind of homesick we've been trying to take you back ever since we found you yeah <laughs> and they uh... keep using the sign for the Sign for delivery. Sign, That's right. Sign for- That's right. What? Uh, what? Uh, tell us about a, a hang gliding competition. What? What sort of of things do you, are you measured on? Uh, well, there's a a variety of, of of contests that can go into a competition, much like what sailplanes fly. Uh, you can uh, have out and backs to a declared goal. You can have open distance days, where everybody goes just as far as they can. And documents it, and they figure out the mileage from the uh, from the uh, GPS and where they pick you up. Uh, you can have speed races through a course. Uh, I've flown contests where they are uh, covered contests, flown contests where we were flying uh, a defined task that involved uh, mandatory altitude gains, uh, mandatory pylon turns. Uh, mandatory gate passages, and then through a finish line. And uh, whoever could do that fastest, and we'd launch two by two and do it two at a time. Uh, Done it where we just did it open, and we recorded each individual uh, launch time, and then somebody in Atlantic Field recorded the the landing time or when they went through the gate to stop the timing. Sometimes you do it that way. it can be really challenging. Now, out in Idaho, the part of the, mount, uh, the mountains that they were flying out there, they're, they're pretty reliable for guaranteeing soarable conditions on a daily basis that time of year. And there's a number of parts of the country, Idaho, Utah, uh, New Mexico, Arizona, California, uh, outside Bishop, California, as a matter of fact, the mm-hmm. Owens Valley. Yeah. Uh, some of the big uh, early open distance records came out of uh, Bishop, California, uh, flying the mountains just uh, on the uh, just to the west there. Uh, at Lookout Mountain, uh, south of Chattanooga, I don't know if they still do it, but we used to have this fall competition every year called the Great Race, mm-hmm. and it was just a flat out time run, twenty three mile round trip. Sorry about that. 
He had to fly. I'll tell you in a second. Go ahead, David. We had to fly the ridge of Lookout Mountain from the uh, Lookout Mountain Flight Park launch north to the New York Militia Monument at Point Park. It's the tallest object there at the tip of the mountain. You made a turn around it. There'd be somebody there to record your turn, make sure that you went all the way around the monument and then raced all the way back to take off and go past the uh, timing uh, person there on launch. And whoever could do that in the fastest time won. Cool. Cool. Uh, did you, did you ever? There were days when you never got more than 200 feet above the tree line uh, for that whole distance. Uh-huh. <laughs> did you ever participate in these kinds of competitions? I did the great race a couple of times. Uh, I did some uh, open distance and pylon uh, competitions over in the Sequatchie Valley, and uh, I flew wind dummy at the uh, Masters of Hang Gliding at uh, Grandfather Mountain in North Carolina. You flew what? Say again? Wind dummy. That's what I thought you said. What's that? All right. Fess up. They had dual launch ramps there, and uh-huh. these tasks that the uh, competitors had to do on a two-by-two, and uh, waiting to see if the conditions were getting sorable out in the valley because they could be sorable in the valley and not sorable at launch, and you could complete the task. So when we started to think it was getting good, we'd send somebody off one of the competition ramps to go snake around out in front of launch and see if we picked up any lift. If we could get high enough to make the first task, then uh-huh. they'd, open up the, they'd open up the window for competition. And, and the and person who did that was called the wind dummy? Wind dummy, that's right. Well, wind dummies were a common occurrence at all launch sites. That's usually the first person that goes off and finds out it's not soarable yet. Oh, okay. Now I'm getting <laughs> Now it becomes clear. Okay. Uh, oh, man, it looks good. Yeah, I'd go now if I were you. If anybody can do it, you can. Yeah, we'll help you launch. Go ahead. My brother, Wait. one of my brothers started taking hang gliding lessons a couple of years back and, uh, and, uh, I think he he enjoying the hang gliding part, but I think it was far away, and he got tired of the commute up there on weekends. But uh, it it um, takes a commitment. It's yeah, but it's kind of part. interesting. I, I'm tempted to give it a try. I, I there must be some well, hang gliding if, operations. If you look here. at this link from Sports Illustrated, the second photograph, mm-hmm. this competitor is uh, John Heine. He's a four time world aerobatic champion in hang gliders. Uh-huh. Uh huh. He's in about a ninety degree bank. I don't know whether he's trying to climb or lose, but just to the right side on the right edge of the picture, just about midway between top and bottom, if you look there, you can see another hang glider way mm-hmm. below him. Mm-hmm. And the plan form on that really intrigued me. Yeah. Because that is not your usual flex that, wing shape. That looks like one of your Easy Riser aircraft wings. Well, it, yes. It's what reminded me of the upper wing of an Easy Riser. Yeah, and I got to flipping through the rest of the photos, and I've got to do it now because I don't remember which one it was. There's, there's, a, a, thumb, there's a thumbnail option here too. There it is, number six. You see a shot yeah. of that wing on yeah. launch. It's oh yeah, okay. Atos. And it's a rigid wing hang glider that actually uses spoilers on the upper surface for roll control. Hmm. And has a little V-shaped tail yeah. off a carbon fiber boom in the back to help with pitch stability. Uh-huh. That's interesting uh-huh. airplane, yeah. It, it, I looked it up. It's hot stuff. Is it? <laughs> uh, like what, what? a 19 to 1 glide ratio. Uh-huh. Uh, 
uh, minimum sink down around 128 feet per minute. And they make one with a little bit more span where the minimum sinks down around 118 feet a minute. That's only two feet a second. Mm-hmm. That, that's vulture sink rate, man. Yeah. That sounds great. And uh, in all these pictures, the scenery is spectacular, man. If you just get to zoom around checking out the scenery, that's all by itself click, pretty cool. Click on that link up there at the top that says swimsuit. <laughs> okay. I think maybe I have a different link, but I get the I get the context. Yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah, it's uh, you know if if you take a look at that, and this is how the Wright brothers taught themselves to fly. Uh huh. Now, if somebody Not wants quite to, as sophisticated as these wings, if somebody wants to get in in to try out hang gliding, is it is it like you know demo flight kind of thing that we do with with conventional aircraft, or how how do you get involved? How well. There's a number of schools uh, like uh, Kitty Hawk Kites over in North Carolina, Lookout Mountain Flight Park uh, south of Chattanooga, uh, the Wallaby Ranch uh, near Winter Haven, not too far from Lakeland, Florida. Is there any sort of national clearinghouse? They actually do tow. They teach with towed hang gliders. Is there any sort of national clearinghouse of uh, these sort of operations so you could look it up on the web to find one near you? The U.S. Hang Gliding and Paragliding uh, association. Huh, okay, we'll see we'll if we can find. Have a listing of schools. We'll see if we can find that website. But chances are, if you Google just that, you'll find it. That's pretty cool, David. Thank you. Uh, it, it, yeah. The only thing you can't do that a bird can do is land in a tree and then take off again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. There's a there's a once. No, there's there's a whole yeah there's a whole thing. There. There's a once joke in there someplace. Cessna Uniform Charlie Alpha Papa is cleared to 71 Kilo via uncontrolled airspace. The members of the uncontrolled airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Frequency is once a week, and they squawk for about an hour 20. Cessna Uniform Charlie Alpha Papa, Rebecca is correct. Anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation. Remember your training and fly the airplane. Advise when ready to taxi. With more episodes than appendages, they'll have to stop counting. It's uncontrolled airspace. So we've got two examples here of how our beloved federal government is uh, trying to keep us safe. Let's see now. Uh, the, <laughs> the first. Why does it make me shiver? I, a little bit, huh? Um, the first one is, uh, and I heard about this a couple weeks ago, um, people were reporting that they were finding these flyers, stacks of these flyers in their FBO, and uh, it's a flyer. Um, has anybody confirmed that this is, in fact, from DHS? Do we well, know that? I don't know about this specific flyer, but I have seen uh, episodes or, or, or um, pieces of paper similar to this. Going back to, to 2002. Yeah. So this is apparently from from uh, Department of Homeland Security, and uh, it uh, and it is just to kind of summarize it. Um, the one one key line here is it says indicators of suspicious activity. They want you to be on the lookout for indicators of suspicious. Yeah. But it's easy for you to say. <laughs> yeah, I know. Suspicious. By the way, it's uh, Sam Adams' Boston Lager tonight. That's what we've got going ah, on. Ah, I've got Oktoberfest linings. Yeah. Uh, indicators of suspicious activity include, and there's about 15 things here, um, 
some, I guess, are good indicators of suspicious activity, but others no, are like no, they're uh, not. Every none day. of them are. You none don't of think any are. of them are? Okay, give me a, give me a couple of egregious examples here of of, of from the list. Um, a customer who insists on paying cash. Yeah. Okay. Well, okay. A lot of people out there don't have credit cards. Uh, uses self fueling very late at night or very early in the morning. I well, was thinking about yeah. that. That's exactly Come on. when you. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's Come exactly on. when you got to use self fueling because there's nobody there to pump gas That's right. for you. Flying an aircraft that is worn out but has very nice GPS system. Well, first of all, who's to say that it's worn out? Yeah. yeah uh, a, and, and who's and, to say it's a very nice GPS? It's a nice GPS. You know, right. What? Right. Yeah. Uh, nervousness. Well, duh. If I just landed in front of a King Air and I was stoned on pot and Oxycontin, I'd be kind of, and I didn't know where I was, I'd be nervous too. Well, apparently he wasn't though, so I don't know if that one works. Well, but, excessive yeah, okay. amount of luggage for only one person. Obviously, you've never traveled with a reporter that has to do never photography, with writing, and yeah. clothes for two weeks. I know. You've never gone to travel with Higdon. With Higdon. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So this is a very uh, distasteful list, um, and. Uh, now, you the know. vague about their travel itinerary part, that's where I get into, what? Even yeah. further. I mean, yeah. what about that day it? when I don't know where I want to go? All I know is that I want to go that away for a couple of hours. Well, at least until after the next election, it's, it's still legal in this country to travel somewhere and not have to tell somebody. This is not really nothing new. As I say, this has been bouncing around in one level or another since 2002. Um, I'm kind of surprised to see it, <clears throat> excuse me, see it bouncing around now because I thought this had kind of, you know, gone by the wayside. Uh, what this tells me is that there's more mission creep afoot at the TSA. And uh, we've got, I think, the, the large aircraft security program, LASP, uh, that uh, is supposed to kind of rear its ugly head again here. Um, things like that. We've got TSA's new GA uh, um, um, flak catcher, uh, supposedly, you know, stumping around to, to reach out to the GA industry and, and all this kind of nonsense. All that makes, all that stuff makes me nervous. And, and this is just one more, uh, um, sign, uh, that reinforces my justification of being nervous. Yeah. Well, and, and, and I almost get the feeling that they're asking for family help here because, at the bottom of this thing, it says, please provide identifying data on the suspect, such as name, address, date of birth, driver's license number, type of aircraft, tail number of aircraft, license plate number, and state telephone number and credit card number. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, why don't you just run a credit check, dude? Freecreditreport.com. Yeah. Uh, or headupmybutt.com. Uh, either one will have all this information for you. Right. I'm going to, I'm going to observe a guy out on the ramp fueling up late at night who's doing an angel flight. So he just had bags transferred from the airplane, right. dropped it off. And I'm going to know his name, address, date of birth, driver's license, type of aircraft. Well, the type of aircraft tail number I may be able to do. If there's no car, license plate number in state's going to be kind of tough. And if I'm scared that this guy's a criminal, am I going to get his telephone number and credit card number? What? It, am I asking yeah. him on a date or buying him cocktails? Right. And, and of course, you know, having the, the air information like type of aircraft and the tail number of the aircraft has worked so well for the Kings. Yeah, I know. I know. Um, 
I, maybe I'm just reading my own feelings in this whole thing, but one of my uh, there was a nice, fun comment or an interesting comment in one of the forums postings discussing this flyer, um, where someone said to uh, one of the FBO folks, because you know they were leaving stacks of these in FBOs around various places, and someone said, you know, were were you know were people picking these up? Were people taking them? And the FBO guy kind of kind of you know you know carefully said said, well, I didn't see very many people taking them, but they're gone now. <laughs> so, <laughs> anyways, um, by the way, uh, sorry, David, headupmybutt.com is already taken. So you, <laughs> uh, you, you ha- might know. Yeah. You have a little app up there on your browser. You just click and, and type in. And, you know, I opened a tab and I typed in headupmybutt.com and uh, I got a website. Uh, now, did you spell butt with one or two T's? Uh, I spelled it with two. Okay, well. <laughs> Got it covered. Yeah, yeah. So, so to speak. Um, so, the other uh, example of our federal government uh, doing its best to protect us goes back a few years. Turns out that uh, September 10th, which I guess is tomorrow, September 10th, 2010, marks the 50th anniversary of the first grounding of all civil aircraft in North America. This is the noise that you heard. You might have heard in the background a few minutes ago. I was preparing for. Uh, uh, this this subject. Ah. And I opened the tab here. Um, this is a YouTube video. Um, this is a historical, uh, you know, sort of, you know, selling of the Pentagon kind of, uh, I guess, uh, <laughs> um, video um, that talks about three separate drills that were held back in the early 60s, uh, where they were trying to simulate um, their response to a massive air attack. Uh, on uh, major cities across the United States, and it involved grounding every airliner, according to the caption of this video, um, involved grounding every airliner and civil aircraft in North America. Um, Every airliner um, was grounded for up to 12 hours, it says. And they did this in September of 60, October of 61, and September of 62. Operation Sky Shield. Yeah. So... uh, um, I don't know what have, to make. Have, did they have they had anything like this uh, ever for rider trucks? Hmm, that would be interesting well, you know, to check on. That. You know, now the, uh, it, it, to their defense, what they were what they were worried about in September of 1960, and what we worry about in September 2010, have evolved a little bit. <laughs> yeah. You well, know, today today I would want them to ground rider trucks too. In those the, days, the, it, and nobody was doing that kind of stuff. The, the only observation I would make at this point is that um, as time wore on, the, the dire warnings um, and, and estimation of, um, let's just say, the Soviet Union's power and abilities um, were proven extremely wrong by the same, and, and these, the, the same people who were who are making those estimates then are making these estimates now. And there's no reason to believe, in my mind, that they're right now. They so, have a habit of not being, being wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to give them credit. Anyways, we should move not, on because this is not, not really being a, right as opposed to being wrong. Not really a general aviation subject, but uh, it's. it's you know, I, I no, tend to think it is. That's okay. You do? Anyway, so congratulations, America. We. we, we, we very handily, and AOPA was actually in on coordinating this with the civil aviation, the GA community, back fifty years ago. Really? Uh, yeah, 
yeah, oh no, they, you know, they, they couldn't email notices to everybody, but it, it was publicized by the, uh, by the association. If I remember, they had, fly- they they had, had flyers people. on the counter at the FBO. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Well, then, how in the I, world I, would they ever run the, the wine club back then? <laughs> that was Hodgson, H O D G S N, G O S N. So, David, what's the story? This this sweet old looking, a sweet looking old guy. Uh, let's see now. His name apparently is Arnold Ebnetter. All right, um, who uh, who built himself an airplane and just never gave up. It took him a little while. What's the, you, you posted this story, David? You know a little bit more about it. Well, I, I saw this when the when the when the guy successfully Arnold Ebnetter. Uh, who 82 years old, and back in uh, July, I believe it was, he flew his 580-pound Ebnetter E1. He built it. Uh, he designed oh, yeah. single-engine airplane. Flew it from Snohomish, Washington, all the way to Virginia, Fredericksburg. I'm sorry, Painfield in Washington to Fredericksburg, Virginia. Uh, something in the neighborhood of 2,200 miles nonstop mm-hmm. and set a record for the category. He broke mm-hmm. the open distance record for that category of airplane. And he, uh, he was inspired to do this back in the 1950s. He started studying engineering in the 50s. He got inspired to uh, build an airplane to break the open distance record back then, and it took him only... 60 years that's perseverance yeah man and yeah. you know uh, uh, you know a shout out to you mr ebnetter that's that's just extraordinary yeah. uh, made the wings wet could carry you know probably was carrying the weight of the airplane and fuel yeah probably uh, was it's, yeah it's a very small little airplane it's i mean it's yeah it's a uh, not single engine single seat um, low wing monoplane fixed gear, and he did it on, he did it on fifty six gallons of fuel. Yeah, that's this whole thing is just just an amazing little story. Um, hats off to Arnold. Hats off to to the airplane, uh, and um, you know, uh, keep following your dreams. You'll you'll get to them. Yeah, you'll make it happen. Yeah, good stuff. Good stuff. And this came 18, back to 18, me because. Go ahead. No, I was going to say 18 hours, 27 minutes from Painfield yeah. outside of Seattle to Fredericksburg, Virginia. That's pretty That's good, the, isn't it? Pretty, pretty freaking good, yeah. How oh, yeah, he averaged, Wait, well, he averaged over 100, and, uh, I think a little over 120 miles an hour. Yeah. On 56 gallons. Yeah. So, obviously, he didn't have to land. Wait a minute, he can't fly 18 hours without landing. He did nonstop. 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 Which means no landing. Fredericksburg, Virginia. I want to know what engine he had in it. Yeah, me too. There's a whole lot of details I haven't found out yet. The uh, the uh, uh, National Aeronautics Association featured him in this month's newsletter as uh, one of the uh, new records recognized by the NAA. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's just holy cow, man! <laughs> it's like a- just amazing. They say that he started out. They say he started out with fifty-eight and a half gallons of fuel, and he arrived with two and a half gallons left. And his quote about this was, "I could have gone another hundred miles." <laughs> there you go. There you go. 
All right, that's very cool, and it's a cool looking little airplane. I'd like to it uh, see it up close. I wonder if it'll ever, uh, you know, be someplace we are. That would be kind of fun. That'd be kind of fun. Arnold Ebnetter of Snohomish, Washington. Oh, we'll hear sure. more about this. Oh, yeah, you can yeah. Be sure. Yeah, yeah. So let's see now, David. What's the story on this uh, piece that you titled? Uh, you had a good title for it, and I've lost it here. Um, um, things to do with a license and plane, air, air, air journey adventures. Um, well, uh, I'm not sure I'm, if I'm clear. I mean, it, it's an interesting little web page that suggests places you can fly. Tell us more. Well, I thought it would open up to the map, but they're working on a trip that uh, if you click on the link that has itinerary, it's supposed to take you to a page that shows the... Uh, whole trip uh this outfit down in florida uh air journeys they are like a travel agency for pilots and they arrange trips uh guided trips if you will for private aircraft owners and after reading about what the guy did with his uh non-pilot's license in airplane i thought well here's something that you could do and have a lot of fun with uh, if you were actually a legal pilot and had an airplane. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, um, David, click the link that says Overview. Is that the map you were talking about? No, <clears throat> click the one that says Itinerary. The, the, um, uh, it says Download Itinerary in PDF. Uh, click that okay. link. Okay, well, overview, overview does show the map I was looking for. Yeah, uh, Yeah, it's the same map. Okay, continue, David. Well, the uh, it's basically yeah. about, it's a 1,300 nautical mile trip that's, takes you out of Key West to Cayman Brack, which is a little island, uh, I don't know, about 20-odd miles from Grand Cayman Island. You're there for a couple of days. If you'd like to dive, you can scuba dive. Uh, then it goes on to take trip, takes you on to Roatan Island off of Honduras. Uh, you spend a couple more days there diving or touring or doing other things, laying on the beach. And then the trip home is... Roatan to Cozumel, near Cancun, fuel up, and then continue on to Key West. And the longest leg on this trip is 350, 360 miles. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, it's actually doable by almost any typical four-seat single-engine airplane. Uh, you know, a Cherokee with 50 gallons will, will do a 500-mile leg pretty comfortably. Not much left in the reserve, so the 330 to Cayman Brack is going to be easy. Roatan 330, that's going to be a little bit longer into your reserve, but weather's going to be nice. A more capable airplane would do it even more comfortably from a fuel perspective. But it's not cheap, but Jesus, look at all the stuff that you can do when you actually have an airplane and a license. Right. You do have to be instrument rated to do these trips. And you got to take along, you know, appropriate survival gear, which if you don't own, you can rent, and you can rent it from the trip organizers. There's other outfits that do this. This wasn't so much to endorse right, right. one particular trip or one particular company's services, but just kind of a jump-in-my-face example of what you can do if you've got the mind and the tools. Mm-hmm. Annie and I were fortunate enough to do a trip organized by the folks uh, under the banner Cayman Caravan uh, a number of years ago, which basically was the Key West to Grand Cayman 
leg, and then you reversed. You went back to Key West. It was about 325 nautical miles. Yeah, it's an easy flight. Easy flight. You got to wave at Cuba. Uh, the leg from south of Cuba to when you could talk to Grand Cayman uh, approach uh, can be kind of quiet, but on that trip we were in groups of four. But you're not out of reach of people to talk to completely ever in that part of the world because you can always get a hold of high-flying airliners and the uh, Coast Guard folks that patrol down there. Yeah. And it's just such great adventure to do something like that. God, it just gets you so juiced and you go... I'm going to be how far from land? Yeah, I know. That's my <laughs> my impression looking at that map, all right, is uh, that's a lot of overwater flying there. That's uh, and it, But you know what? You know what? It's not. What? The airplane doesn't know the difference. Right. Yeah, but I do. Uh, yeah. That's no, the only thing cool. you got to deal with is the yeah. fact that you do. I yeah. do. I did. Yeah. No, it does look very cool, like a great adventure and uh, a beautiful part of the world to go exploring, for sure. For sure. Uh, this is from the ChicagoTribune.com website. Um, premium air routes aim to put jets <laughs> in the faster lane or in faster lanes. Um, the equivalent of, quote, Lexus lanes, whatever that is, um, are being created in the skies above Chicago that should help reduce traffic jams that often block arrivals to vital run- to a vital runway at Midway <clears throat> Airport. Praise the Lord. Where's my flying car? <laughs> I know. Southwest Airlines plans to start flying new lanes in January. What the heck is, you know, as David is- likes to say, Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. All right. What is this all about? This you is- want to go jab or you want me to? <laughs> Uh, this is Jeb go first. Go ahead. This is some PR flax idea of how to sell, a, how to pitch a story to uh, well, who I hope is a cub reporter for the Chicago Tribune, uh, and and punch up <clears throat> um, the fact that his client is uh, um, going to avail itself of next gen and uh, ADSB and in all of the uh, little G jaws that it offers. Um, and they're inventing uh, these, quote, premium air routes, the Lexus routes or whatever, um, as, as being uh, a competitive advantage for his client's air carrier over other air carriers. That's all this is. This is, this is strictly nothing more than PR. Mm-hmm. Well, and, except, and, and, for, except for the operational part of it, which is based on Southwest decided to go full tilt into upgrading its flight management systems to WAS capability, and I believe required navigation performance level uh, equipment would be RNP.3, right. which means it's accurate to three-tenths of a mile. That's 1,800 feet. Uh, and there are... In the in-route environment. It, but that's in the in-route environment and terminal environment. It's going to be much more accurate than that. Oh, yeah, and it's going to be 0.1. Right. Uh, and in the terminal environment, RNP 0.1, one-tenth of a mile, that's 600 feet. Uh, the FAA has started developing arrival routes for aircraft equipped for RNP 0.3 and 0.1 that basically are express lanes around what the normal approach would be for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I uh, this isn't on the list, but I I, I saw I, I watched a, a internet video um, in the past couple of days about a an IT professional who's talking at a conference, um, talking about um, how how 
absolutely awful IT is in every area area of the federal government. You know, I mean, we, we moan about how what a bad job they're doing at putting together next gen and getting all these things worked out and, you know, trying to upgrade air traffic control and whatnot. Apparently, this is par for the course. Um, IT is horrible in every area of the federal government for a, a lot of, according to this guy, a lot of very interesting reasons that are kind of endemic to our federal government. I'll, I'll send you guys that video. You can take a look. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know. It, it, it IT is apparently a big mess throughout the entire government, and yes. uh, NextGen yes, is not a special case. Um, but he actually That's, elaborated a bit on NextGen because it's such a dramatic example of, of how bad and how much money they're spending to accomplish almost nothing. Um, well, actually, if you look at some of this stuff, uh, like the proliferation of LPV approaches for airports that couldn't get anything remotely close to that kind of approach minima before WAS. Uh, that for the GA population, th- this whole movement is doing some small good things. Um, some of the wholesale big savings on for the airlines from shorter routes and, and less fuel burn and all that stuff, that only works if those guys adapt and it's not going to be pretty getting it done. I mean, it's just not. It's not in the nature of the FAA. But things like what United Parcel Service has been doing in, the, uh, in its arrivals to Louisville for, I don't know, two and a half or three years now, right. yeah. based on WAS and ADSB, uh, have tightened up their arrivals, have let them save a huge amount of uh, fuel dollar-wise because of a system that lets the aircraft communicate from one to the other and the crews are told how much to adjust their approach speed by the computers, basically, talking to one another, so that they can do these long flight idle descents from high altitude, one after another after another, with very little vectoring, very little route changing, just changing slight headings as they come into a line, you know, miss the Indianapolis airspace, line up with the Louisville airspace. Uh, there's something to be said for this stuff, but this wholesale, oh, it's going to revolutionize our life, that's, that's going to be slow coming. Has, have we ever established, has anybody that we trust um, ever documented that cleaning up ATC like this isn't going to slow down, it isn't going to improve delays? You know, let, me ask, let me ask you, yeah, well, let me just ask the question or state the obvious here. How many new runways are we going to be building? That's kind of what I was that's getting at. That's going to be the choke point. Right. right. That that's the problem. There's no question exactly. that improving ATC would be a good thing, all right? But it wouldn't get us an awful lot of improvement in in congestion. No. Because that's not what's causing the congestion. Well, uh, and got... the congestion's largely a, fo- a, 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 fo- a focused problem at the pacing airports. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like... We have congestion problems here at Mid-Continent in Wichita, even though we have close to, you know, uh, 100 in and outs a day by the airlines and all this uh, uh, GA production flight test and yeah. Air Force f- uh, flight test traffic going on at the airport. 
when we have delay problems here, it's predominantly because things are screwed up in Atlanta right, or right. things are screwed up in Dallas or Denver. or, or Yeah, or some it's the hub out. and spoke system. The hub and spoke system, on the surface of it, it kind of seems elegant, but in fact, it's kind of an abomination. I mean, it's just really a bad idea. It, it just there, There's a things. lot that can be done to improve en route flow when you're away from the hub, the pacing airports, that will save the airlines money in shorter trips because they're burning less fuel. Uh, RVSM helped a little bit of that by opening up some more altitudes, but it didn't revolutionize the world. Uh, but for any of this stuff to make big gains or make big changes, it's going to take some major changes in either flowing in and out of the pacing airports, the hub airports, or more runways and more procedures at the hub airports. There's no way around that. But it can do good things in other parts of the country at, at, at the non-pacing airports that will be, still be helpful to the airlines. But as long as the hub and spoke systems routing such a huge percentage of the traffic through such a small number of hub airports, uh, disruptions are going to be a way of life just because those airports are already overdosed. Yeah, yeah. They're already handling more on VFR days than they were really designed to handle, and they can't come close to that on the IFR days right now. So here's our mantra. More runways. More, More runways. runways. Well, like, yes, that's, that's always been uh, the ultimate solution to all of the, the airline complaints and airline passenger complaints, for that matter, regarding uh, delays and congestion. Um, you can't put, well, let's say a runway has, in, on, a, on a good VFR day, it has a, 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 a let me rephrase it, let's say the, the airport has an acceptance rate of 60 aircraft per hour, okay? Uh, you can't schedule 65 or 70 or 75 flights into that airport and expect them all to be on time. Someone's going to have to wait or, you know, and move into the next hour. Um, and there are a lot of airports around the country at certain times of day where, in the past anyway, I don't know about now, there's, there's been some... Uh, legwork by the FIA and, and by the DOT with some of the airlines over a period of years to uh, try to get them to, uh, uh, you know, wake up and smell the coffee. And, you know, we understand about competition. We understand about needing to schedule flights that, that go places uh, when people want to go there. Um, but you can't put, you know, uh, 10 pounds of <clears throat> stuff into a five-pound sack. It, it, it doesn't work. Yeah. And that's what the airlines have been trying to do since the hub-and-spoke system became popular and was, and was widely implemented, you know, 20-some-odd years ago. Um, there are any number of, of reasons why we're not building new airports and, and new runways. I mean, Chicago O'Hare is, is, has embarked on a multi-year, multi-billion dollar uh, effort to build a, a single, as I understand it, a single new runway. Um, it's probably been in the works for, for 20 years, and by the time the first airplane lands on it, it will be obsolete. Uh, there's a lot of political, environmental, financial reasons that, that we don't build runways, but um, you can't have your cake and eat it, too. Either, yeah. either we put up with airport congestion and, and airline delays, or we build enough runways and adequate infrastructure to handle it all, bottom line. The one, the one real potential gain available from 
you know, the, the, the move to ADSB wash technology and, and then the procedures and changes that will make it real next-gen stuff is predominantly right now, without new runways, focused on improving the IFR performance of these airports. Mm-hmm. If they can maintain the runway acceptance rate uh, in IMC conditions that they can handle in VMC conditions, uh, they can go a long way toward yeah. avoiding a lot of the congestion and foobar that happens when uh, weather starts to screw up these hub airports. Foobar. But, is, is, is foobar in the pilot controller glossary? Uh, I think it's in the airman's, airman's information, man. Oh, okay. Okay. I'll, I'll go check that out. Yeah. Okay. But UPS, has, UPS doesn't do anything that costs it money. Okay. I mean, that. No. It's one of the grandest companies in the world for doing things because it makes them money, even if they have to spend money on something special to do it. For example, years ago, they bought a bunch of 757s to use as package freighters. But their 757s weren't converted out of passenger airplanes. They were purpose-built with a whole bunch of special procedures and special uh, features. Mm Mm-hmm that they worked out with Boeing before the first one rolled down the line in Renton. Uh, this effort that they've put into ADSB and their pacing system and the software that makes it happen lets them sustain a runway arrival rate into Louisville International during IMC conditions that's almost the same as what they can do in VMC. Yeah. It doesn't slow them down anywhere, but the other airlines operating in that airport don't get that advantage uh, because they're not equipped the same. They don't have the, the, the ADSB equipment. They don't have the WASP hardware. They don't have the software to make the FM, uh, FMS systems all work with one another. They could, but it requires investing money up front, and only when everybody is in on the deal can that kind of universal flow control for, you know, bad weather operations matching or getting close to matching good weather operations, it's not going to be possible until then. Yeah. And that's a long way out, baby. Hey, we're reaching the end of our allotted time here. Um, I'm going to skip ahead to shout-outs unless uh, you guys have an objection. One, one, one thing real quickly here. While we're talking this afternoon, this evening, I got an email from Jeppesen. Yeah. Uh, headline or the subject line is delay in revision delivery dates. Let me really? just read that. Let me just read this really quickly to you. This is dated September 9. Delay in revision delivery dates. An extraordinarily high number of airspace and procedure changes, some of which are very complex, have been issued by aeronautical authorities, leading to several of the largest Jeppesen revisions on record. As a result, we expect delays in our delivery of revisions to customers over the next couple of weeks. This affects paper chart services. This, is, this affects electronic uh, charting services <clears throat> and Jeppesen's uh, e-link online. Among the affected product lines are JetView, FlightDeck, NavSuite, Universal Cockpit Display, e-link for Windows, ProLine 21, Epic iNav, Military Chart Service, Avidyne F, uh, MFD, and Jeppesen Mobile TC. That's pretty much all of all of uh, Jeppesen's product line. Mm-hmm. Um, they've got a link here in this oh, email the, for additional information and, and things like this. 
Um, those of you who, who happen to hear this uh, this podcast and, and, and uh, learn about this uh, um, before the revision uh, cycle comes up, which would probably be, I guess, uh, um, Thursday week, which would be let's see, uh, 16th or something like that. Um, if, if you're if you can't download your data or you can't get your charts or something like that, this is why. Mm-hmm. Is this just a coincidence or is there something sinister going on here? In what way? <laughs> I don't know. You know, are you know, are they, are they putting in more permanent TFRs? Are they, you know, is this is this DHS related? Is this? I don't know. I'm being. I, you know, keep in keep in mind that um, this just happen from time to time. Yeah, this just this kind of the way this reads to me is just a confluence of events. Keep in mind that Jeppesen um, doesn't do just United States airspace. They do airspace throughout the world, mm-hmm. and uh, what what they are basically saying here is, um, an ex- again, just reading this first sentence, an extraordinarily high number of airspace and procedure changes dot 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 have been issued by aeronautical authorities. What they're saying is is that, and, and all of this goes on by international agreement on these on these cycles. We we twenty eight and fifty six day cycles. Um, what Jefferson is saying here is that the United States probably, as well as a bunch of other aeronautical authorities throughout the world, have all have just by, by coincidence mainly put out a bunch of these procedural changes, all of which have to be processed and, and incorporated into the next updates. And Jefferson is saying, whoa, time out, folks. We're going to need a couple extra days. Okay. All right. But again, you know, it could be DHS. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, man. Just leave his paranoia dangling. Not that, I, not that I'm paranoid, but they are out to get us. Yeah. Shout outs. Who's Just got shout outs? Doesn't mean they're not out to get you. I, I, ha- I have one. It's kind of a downer, uh, but you know, it kind of gives us all the opportunity to think back to uh, a simpler time. And, and uh, um, we, we still have today the ability to enjoy mm-hmm. uh, this work. And that is... Um, uh, sad commemoration of the passing of Sky King's niece Penny, yep. uh, Gloria yeah. Winters, who who played uh, the role in in the Sky King series back in the fifties and sixties, um, passed away August fourteen uh, at her home in California. This is according to the New York Times. There's just a a wonderful uh, image of her that we've got here with uh, uh, Songbird, uh, the 310, uh, in, in the background. Um, and I uh, uh, just wanted to you know, note that. I, I uh, uh, haven't watched a Sky King episode in, in several decades, uh, but it's on my next Netflix to download list. So uh, mm-hmm. yeah. one of these days soon I'll get around to, to uh, revisiting some of this. Yeah. It's, yeah. It, Just in, it, she's in, part of a great part of, of aviation history, no question. She, she is, and, and uh, especially here in the U.S., but uh, um, um, just a lot of you know fond memories of that time. Uh, and uh, those of us who are, who are of an age uh, remember her very fondly and remember that series and, and that, whole, uh, that whole culture uh, very fondly. So uh, uh, hats off to her. Uh, um, another one that's flown west. David, what do you You got? were the first big crush for me. Yeah, she was a cutie. Oh, yeah. She was a cutie, no question. Well, and Scott King beat Howdy Doody any day for me. <laughs> Other yeah, shout-outs? 
I was always poor, partial to Natasha myself. Ooh, yeah. David, you got any shout outs? Yeah, one quick one here. Uh, a shout out to uh, a gentleman named John Staber of Old Chatham, New York, who flew the original Colonial Skimmer, which was an amphib that evolved eventually into the lake line. He uh, restored it and flew it back to uh, be seen by the guy that designed the airplane, uh, David Thurston and Jack Tarbax, who was chief engineer for Colonial Aircraft Corporation in Sanford. It was act- this is the actual prototype for the Colonial Skimmer line that evolved into the Lake Amphib line uh, that we still know and, and, and a lot of people covet today. Uh, you don't often hear about actual prototypes or first-offs of something with this kind of lineage uh, coming back into play. And it just kind of jumped out at me that not only did the guy, Mr. Stauber, uh, recognize what he had uh, and spend the time and, and money to restore it, but he kind of had this uh, nice idea about taking it back to, uh, to show the original designer. And I thought that was kind of cool. So... Shout out to Mr. Stauber and to uh, Mr. Thurston, who gave us that design to begin with. Yeah, yeah, very cool, very cool. And finally, um, I have a, it's not really a shout out, it's more of a sort of podcast administration thing, but uh, it's, uh, I've entitled this, uh, and now for something completely different. Um, So for for over three years now, uh, we've done a new episode of this podcast every week, right? And that's an achievement that we're sometimes more. Yeah, I know. But uh, we've done on average 53 episodes a week for the past three years. And we're very, very proud of that. And we occasionally had to work pretty hard to make it happen. Um, But uh, we did. Um, but but now that we've reached episode 200 and we're into year five, we've decided to mix things up a little bit. So drum roll, please. We're going to take a couple weeks off for the first time in a while. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah. So the next episode of UCAP, uh, episode 208, will appear in your feed on the week of uh, September 29th. Now, don't panic. Uh, we're not losing our passion for doing this podcast. Uh, we just felt that it's time to try some new things. And this hiatus is going to give us some breathing room to uh, try and get some new balls in the air. So uh, so stay tuned for some, we hope, exciting new things from, from the UCAP gang. And for these next two weeks, don't worry about having to go cold turkey. We're going to be posting into the regular podcast feed the first two episodes of a new feature that we're tentatively calling the Uncontrolled Airspace Hangar Classics. Uh, These are going to be approximately 30-minute episodes that contain highlights from the first 200 episodes of UCAP. Um, You don't need to do anything special to get the UCAP Hangar Classics. You'll get them the very same way you get the regular podcast, either through the automatic feed or um, the manual downloads from the uh, show notes page. So stay tuned. We'll be back with episode 208 sometime after September 29th, and keep your ears open for some other new stuff from UCAP. And that's my shout-out. Uh, let's see now. So uh, definitely time to stick a fork in this one. Ow! D- Dave Higgin, uh, as always, been a lot of fun. Uh, Dave is an aviation photographer, an aviation journalist, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. Uh, David, where can people find you on the Internet? Oh, DaveHigdon.biz, Avbuyer.com, AEA.net, or, you know, play uh, Internet Roulette and Google me and 
ignore the golf writer and the theoretical physicist. I don't play golf. And you don't do physics? I don't know. And Jeb Burnside is uh, a freelance <laughs> aviation journalist, currently serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Jeb, where can people find you on the Internet? One of my day jobs is at uh, AviationSafetyMagazine.com. Another one is uh, AEA.net. Uh, you want to find out about my personal life, you can check the local police blotter or uh, JEBurnside.com. <laughs> Uh, I occasionally pop up on AvWeb and um, coming soon to uh, a, a post office uh, bulletin board near you. And I am Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. You can learn more about me at jackhodgson.com and aroundthefield.net. Big thanks to uh, Jeff Ward for creating our show notes. Thanks to Mike Morgan, Royce Earle, and to the many other listeners who have created the uh, UCAP disclaimer clips and the other cool audio clips that you hear from time to time as part of this podcast. We're also very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. It doesn't need to be very much. Just 10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big help. And don't forget, you can visit with all of us at the Uncontrolled Airspace website. You can read the blog, view the forums, check out the wiki, the aviation <laughs> movies list, the new ratings, webpage of fame, and more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, what do you want to say? Live long, go fly, because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. Bye-bye. That's right, and that's enough talking. Let's go flying. See you in two weeks. TTFM. <laughs> <laughs>